0: Than me, <laughs> Sharon, alcoholic. Okay. Um, well, this is. Uh, I'm going to talk about amends and forgiveness, and uh, I'm going to. St- All right, I'm screwing you up, Deb. There's that better. They're better. Where's the main? You get a, a man here that likes dials. <laughs> okay. Um, so yes. Um, but we're gonna start with a little story about Willie Pep. Does anybody know who Willie Pep is? He was an old boxer. <laughs> he was, he was a boxer and and he just um, he would go in the ring and he'd always get beat up and he you know, he'd take the like he he wouldn't take the ten count but he'd stay down until about seven or eight and then he'd get up, right? And then and the and his his manager kept saying, Willie, stay down. Look at your face, look at you And he just stayed down the next time and he couldn't do it. He kept having to pop up and Wally, so, what 's wrong with you? You got brain damage or something and he said i don 't want to start no bad habits and I just and I thought that 's you guys here you 're here you 're not starting no bad habits. Thank you for coming again we 're at round three and uh, yeah, I had a little twenty minute uh, cat nap and uh, went outside and got attacked by a mosquito, but we handled that so so it's all good, and uh, we'll go right from Willie Papp to Carl Young. I think that's a good segue. <laughs> and I just, you yeah, know, Carl Young, thank God that Roland went to Carl Young because, um, you know, Roland was an alcoholic, to Roland Hazard, the one who went to Ebby, who started the whole train to uh, of, of spiritual, sacred moments to get us here to have Bill and Bob finally meet at the gatehouse and um he was came from an affluent family and they he was an alcoholic and they just couldn't figure him out so they they were going to send him to the best psychiatrist in Europe and and Freud was their first choice but Freud was busy thank you god or we'd be uh you know maybe we'd be all sitting here with who knows our baby bottles and teddy bears or i, I don't know it would be a different it would be a different thing and and Carl Jung had a spiritual tone to all of his therapies. And so when, when Roland went and he worked with Jung for quite a long time and he felt like he was good and, you know, they just thought maybe he was a neurotic. Not that any of us understand that word at all, but so he went and he was going home and he stopped in Paris with his buddies and he had a little champagne. Well, that started it all. And then, you know, then it was on. The alcoholism was in full bloom. And so he went back to Carl Jung, and Carl Jung said, whoops, I misdiagnosed you. I thought you were just a a neurotic, but I think what you're what they call an alcoholic, and I can't help you. And I said, what do you mean you can't help me? There's no cure for it. You know, you're going to, you know, die of, you know, of this disease, or you're going to get locked up and you're not going to have any kind of a life. It's, it, it's progressive and once you've had it, you know, basically, once you're a pickle, you're not a cucumber anymore, is what he was saying in very therapeutic terms. And, and Jung, and Jung told him, just, you know, go home, try to have a, have a life, just see where it goes, but I don't think there's any hope for you, I can't help you. And Roland was bummed, basically. And, you know, he said, what can I do? We have money. I'll I'll give to the church. I'll build a church. I'll do whatever you want. And and Young said, it's not going to matter. And he was like, what are my chances? And basically, Young said, go out on the road and just go walk. Go find yourself a thunderstorm and walk. And if you get struck by lightning, maybe it'll change you. And those are your odds. If you get struck by lightning, which, you know, I don't know if anybody in here has been struck by lightning, but not everybody can go stand on a road in a thunderstorm and get struck by lightning. And I think about that. You know, if he would have been despondent enough, he might have killed himself, too. And then we wouldn't have had him, me, Debbie, and on we go. So the more I read into the history and look at all of those moments that might not have happened, that we get to be here... And that, you know, Sandy used to talk about, you know, when there was only one meeting a week. (laughs) They had had to do a lot of spiritual work in between. You know, and they had one meeting a week, and they'd have to go out into the world, and they had, they built the community around calling each other, seeing each other, because there was only one meeting a week back in the day. And they had to really work their spiritual tools. They had to really find God, as we know, uh Dr. Bob was big on that. You know, you gotta have your God, or you're not even, we're not even gonna go forward here. So um, I just am so grateful that we have, you can parachute in any city, really, almost anywhere, and find the AA meeting. You'll find the best place to eat. You'll find where you gotta hang out. You'll find you know, where, where, to, where to go get your oil change. I mean, you know, we just, we're a community. And we need to take care of this community. We need to take care of each other. Not everybody's going to come in day and and, uh, get their own way. (laughs) If you can come in and know you're not going to get your own way the rest of your life, you know, that's good. And not everybody's going to like you, and you're not going to like everybody else. That's okay. But the egalitarianism of alcoholism is that we all have it, there's a solution. And the solution's for everybody. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care where you come from. If you're an alcoholic and you surrender to the solution, you can have it. And that's how we connect. Because it's a common problem with a common, you know, the the common solution. And I don't know where you can go like that. I I just don't know where you can go like that, where we're in unity. We're in unity. And unity is strong. And, And, you know, I've said it before, I hope we uphold the tradition so that people that need this will find the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. One alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. So um, those things are very important to me the longer I'm here, and, um, you know, I don't, you know, I just recently have delved a little bit more into the concepts, but um, I was a general service once, and then I was like, okay, I'll go. She told me, you got to do this commitment, my first sponsor, the scary one. And I I said, okay, all right, and she said, it's for two years. Oh, my God, two years. I think I I almost hit her, really, two years. I don't do anything for two years. It just seemed impossible, and I didn't get it. I didn't, I'd like to sit in the service meetings and go, oh, why do I care about this? And then after two years, I became a DCM for two more years. And then I, I just, um, I kind of just, I said, I don't think it's my thing. It's great, but I really don't want to run for an office. And I'm sponsoring people, and that seems to be more where. I feel effective. So we all have our spots. You know, we all have our spots. And you know, also everybody's in various degrees at a hundred and eighty degree turn here, so you know, we have to have patience with each other too. And some people click around a couple times and stop and and you know, I used to say, How can he be cheating people out of their money? He's he's a sober alcoholic. Said, you know, what's his sponsor saying? And how can they have an affair on their wife or their husband? That's you know, what does their sponsor say? And, you know, it's like they, they, can, they can do it. Don't look too deep because then you might understand. You know, <laughs> don't look too deep is what she said. So, you know, and also when I, was, uh, when I would hear them say half measures avail us nothing, I used to think, okay, that's, what does 60% get me? You know, I mean, like <laughs> I was a little bit like trying to work the angle, which, you know, didn't really work. So, you know, and then Carl wrote this, too. Dr. Carl Jung, one of the three founders of modern depth psychology, had a profound conviction upon which this great dilemma of the world today, upon this great dilemma of the world today. In paraphrase, this is what he had to say about it. Any person who has reached 40 years of age and who has still no means of comprehending who he is, where he is, or where he is next going cannot avoid becoming a neurotic. To some degree or other, this is true, whether his youthful drives for sex, material security, and a place in society have been satisfied or not satisfied. When the benign doctor said becoming neurotic, he might as well have just said becoming fear-ridden. And we come in here fear-ridden. I came in here fear-ridden. And when I read the steps on the wall, you know, I was like, I didn't comprehend much, but I thought, I'm not doing that. I'm i 'm not i 'm not doing that you know i didn 't really have an excuse for it. I mean, I sponsor a nun, I sponsor an ex nun I know that 's a stretch after you heard my story, but um, <laughs> you know the nun said i 've done all these already you know i 've been to confession, I give my service to god i you know all of that um, she was a shoplifting little um closet drinking none, but literally in the closet so nobody would know. This is how sincere she was. You Talk about getting rid of your bottles, right? You know, you're in the nunnery. They're watching everything. If your light is on, they're knocking on your door to talk to you or something. So she would go in her closet. She had a suitcase. And she would wrap her bottles, and then she would tape her bottles so they wouldn't clang around. And so she would sit in there with the no lights on in her closet, door closed to the rest of the nunnery, unzip her suitcase, take her bottles out one by one, tape them up, untape them, pour her drink, tape them up, put it back in there, get it all ready in case they came in. they couldn't see that, they might look in the closet, and then have her drink. And then she'd have to do it again for the second drink. (laughs) Undo, redo. And then she was, you had those big pockets, so she would take them all and take like one, two bottles out at a time, you know, to other garbage cans. So I I said, well, if you can do that, you can do these steps, girl, you know? (laughs) That is very sincere. So, so yeah, you know, fear, fear, I I don't know about you, but I was a fearful little. I was afraid of the dark. And my son went to visit my mom and dad every year in Iowa because he's an LA boy and he needed he needed that. And people at meeting today said he doesn't act like he's from California, you know, because he's engaging and he has manners and he's works hard and things like that. But he said to me after like the first time he went, "Mother, it's so dark there. It's so dark there. I mean, it's like you don't realize that." You're afraid of the dark until you go somewhere like that, and it's like, oh my God, it's dark there. And um, but yeah, so these these steps that (sighs) I don't know, you have to have like somebody like Pat Yo behind me eight days, who had eight days less than me. Like I said last night, stole my thunder to motivate me because she got. She cried all the time. Everybody was hanging out with Pat. No, poor Pat and her husband and this and that. And Pat finished her inventory. I know you haven't even started yours yet. And then Pat's in her amends. Pat's already in her amends. Oh, I don't want to hear any more about Pat. I got eight days on her. I got eight days on her. I don't care. And and she had her husband was... I guess her first husband was dying of cancer, so she had to push through the steps fast. I didn't know that I just it seemed like every time they'd read Chapter Five, she'd look at me with like this little blue lip look you know like I know I've done mine, I know you haven't started your <laughs> wherever she was in the room, I'd kind of eyeball her, and I know she's thinking that so so i you know i didn't I didn't do my inventory until. Oh God! I was just about before my year sober. I literally had a hard time putting it on paper, and I start once it started, it just wouldn't stop. I had to have a notebook in the car and making notes. It was just like I broke a dam open. But uh, I did that fifth step with my sponsor, and it you know it talks about having a, a closeness with him you know it's in the twelve and twelve, and it's got it talks about having that closeness. That you can't, you know, you've become part of the human race, it says. You know, it was, uh, yeah. This vital step was also the means by which we began to get the feeling we could be forgiven, no matter what we had thought or done. Often it was while working on this step with our sponsors or spiritual advisors that we first felt truly able to forgive others, no matter how deeply we felt they had wronged us our moral inventory had persuaded us that all around forgiveness was desirable. But it was only when we resolutely tackled step five that we inwardly knew we'd be able to receive forgiveness and give it to. So that was, you know, definitely huge for me. And these obstacles, talking about and making the amends, however, they are very real. The first and one of the most difficult has to do with forgiveness, step eight. The moment we ponder a twisted or break, broken relationship with another person, our emotions go on the defensive. To escape looking at the wrongs we have done another, we resentfully focus on the wrong he has done us. And it goes on. And then it says, right there we need to fetch ourselves up sharply. It doesn't make much sense when a real tosspot calls, calls, calls a cattle black. I like some of these terminologies. Let's remember that alcoholics are not the only ones bedeviled by sick emotions. And it says, then it goes on about having the patience, and in many instances, we are really dealing with fellow sufferers, people whose woes we have increased. If we are now about to ask forgiveness for ourselves, why shouldn't we start out by forgiving them one and all? And by taking step five, I did feel differently. I don't really know what was much different other than I dropped her off in the morning and the sunrise was there. We were up all night on Venice Beach. With my flashlight, and the police kept coming by, wondering what we were doing. Oh my God! <laughs> you know, don't take my inventory with, with you. And they just wanted to make sure we girls were okay. They sat and watched us for a while because Venice wasn't Venice Beach wasn't that safe at night. Um, so I dropped her off, and I looked up in the sky, and there was something that came out of me that was so corny. I knew it wasn't me. That I must have something came through and said, "Look at that morning light. Angels would live there." What? Angels would live there. I, I would never say anything like that. And it was just—it was a moment that caught me because it wasn't from me. And those are sacred moments. And I'm sure if you look back over any part of taking a step, there's a sacred moment in there somewhere. And those are—you, you you know—it's like you can't walk out and get struck by lightning. Those are—you know those. Come from the work we have done, and the steps that have been laid out, and and the directions given, and great you know great things can happen. That things can be forgiven that you never thought could be forgiven. Um, and the word forgiveness is forgiving. You know it's forgiving. Um, you're giving something to somebody. It's very interesting that I didn't get that for a long, long time. Um, and it says to give up resentment against or stop waste stop wanting to punish someone for an offense or fault, and we grant forgiveness like we grant wishes I think <laughs> it 's kind of funny. we grant pardons, we grant forgiveness, we grant wishes you know so it's it's it 's a forgiving thing it 's a spiritual thing it's it 's not anything very tangible, but it comes from spirit to spirit and um I've seen a lot of great things happen with forgiveness. So back to Pat. Um, Those eight, you know, I walked in that meeting that night. Someone had told her I had done my fist up. And I was ready for her, you know. I was ready for her to look at me and go, oh, no, you haven't done yours. But nobody told me they had told her. And when they read Chapter 5 and they read 4 and 5, she turned over and just big smile. Big smile saved me. She just saved me a big, big smile. And uh, Pat and I have, have been close most most of the time. Um, I was at the um, what they used to call it the Roundup with Chuck, C. and and at the Riviera Hotel in Palm Springs. They, that was the first one before now. It's called something else and it's in a different spot. But uh, everybody went and I went back to Palm Springs, which was the scene of my crime. And um, I I ran into my detective at dinner. They drove right by the place where the the guys had taken me because I had to go back and look um, after I got out of the hospital with the detective. So it was like I was having these these deep moments of of kind of of fear, fear. I was very very afraid, and I was having a very hard time just being sitting in the room. And I went to hug somebody, and she st- she said, "Oh, my son, Baron, don't hug me." And I saw the back door a liquor store of this hotel, and it was across the street, and I started making a beeline for that. And there's always one guy in our group standing by the wall, one girl, so whatever, but checking out what's going on, you know? And and his name was Duke G. He's not with us anymore either. And he saw that I was intent on going somewhere, and he kind of grabbed me by the Tough and pulled me back in and said, What's going on with you? And then, of course, I burst into tears. And I told him I was having a hard time being here and the, the sunburn, and I can't was, you know. And I'm going to get some vodka, and I don't care anymore, you know. And he said, Sharon, then you'll have less time than Pat. <laughs> so, thank you, Pat. <laughs> Because I walked back in and sat at the, at the next meeting and the woman spoke, she said, she gave me some freedom. She said, we are not bad people trying to get good here. We are sick people trying to get well. And that gave me some freedom. And I kind of understood another level of (laughs) that this is, this is going to work if I do what I'm supposed to do. So of course I, uh, my one of my big first amends was going home to Iowa, and we had written out something for my dad because I didn't want to, I didn't want to slip up um, because I had a, you know we hadn't really talked in years, and we hadn't gone eye to eye in years, and now they know I'm sober and I'm coming home for my first sober visit. And um, my mom and I were great. My mom and I always so bonded. And like I told you last night, that she slept at night knowing where her daughter was safe with you. And that just brings me the most joy when I work with another woman, and I know that her her children are sleeping at night, or her children won't have to worry about finding her on the couch or on the floor. That you know the parents know where she is, and that you know they come give her a cake and you know, for one year, and it's just, you know, they say if you're new, that 10 people's lives are immediately better the minute you walk in here and sit, that they're able to sleep, they're able to go digest their food, go out to dinner, see a movie, the bail bondsman's not going to call, they don't have to hide the keys to the car, their life, 10 people's lives are better immediately the minute we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and so it's not about you right away from the start, you know, (laughs) darn, but... um, takes a long time to kind of live like it's not about you and it's very freeing that's the freedom I've come to and so I did go home and we wrote what I needed to write about my dad and we were um, I've been there seeing family members and it was 10 days in and we're putting my my luggage in the car to take me back to the airport and I haven't talked to my dad yet and that intimidation from that sponsor, thank God, I knew if I got off the plane, she put me right back on the plane. So I said, hey, Dad, I need to talk to you. And it was this kind of uh, Indian summer day in Iowa with blue sky, puffy clouds, warm. I remember leaning against the car, I said, I got to talk to you, Dad. He said, okay. He leaned against the car, I leaned against the car. I remember the car being warm. I remember looking at my feet, my toes that were making, I think, holes in the sand. The car was parked on sand, and I don't know, maybe he was doing the same, but nobody was looking at each other, and no one was, we didn't have a face-to-face. And I said what I needed to say to my dad, you know, and it was written, and it was scripted, and it was what I needed to say, and my dad was quiet for a minute, and he said, I just always wanted you to be happy. So, my sponsor said, that's a good start. (laughs) <laughs> Start, so when you call home and you talk to him, you're happy when you go home and you see him you're happy he and um you know basically gave me what he wanted me to be he wanted me to be happy, so it didn't just all heal up the you know the lilac bush didn't burn, and the you know the earth didn't quake. Um, I just got in the car and came back and as time went on with my dad, um, it got good. It got better. It wasn't just the weather. It was actually when he'd answer the phone, he'd talk to me instead of handing it to mom. Um, I don't know if anybody came from that kind of a relationship, but you know, mom always got on the phone, and if there was anything from dad, maybe he'd ask her. And he, but it was um, they met my uh, first husband Al, and they liked him, and he was nice to me, and. He was uh, funny, and he liked my mom's cooking. And when it came time to uh, get engaged and get married, my dad and mom came out to California, and we got two ex-Catholics got married in a Baptist church uh, with a day at a time putting the vows. And we had we were on a shoestring, so we had um, ham and cheese sandwiches. We had um, I had my grandma I had my mother's gown redone. Um, with beautiful silk by a girl in the group. And we had a lady who played Rachmaninoff on, on a classic piano. We had a guy whose wife sang. Um, he was the guy that did Fly Me to the Moon, so they were an artistic families. so she sang. Um, my dad got to meet an astronaut. He thought that was so cool. Um, and my dad went to an AA meeting. He went to our home group. And he stood up that night and he said, My name's Frank Meyer. I'm from Mont Vernon, Iowa. I'm here to get my daughter away in marriage. And, you know, it's usually alcoholics that stand up. But nobody said, Sit down. You're not an alcoholic. They just said, Hi, Frank. And he went over to the literature table. I didn't see that or I would have worried. And he did. He bought the big book. <laughs> and uh, after after the wedding, he went home and read it. And... It got easier going home. a Little bit easier. But there was always something there. And what it was was my guilt. I owed my dad a lot of money. I owed my, I put my dad, I told you about him coming to the jail in Bogalusa, Louisiana. That cost him a lot of money. Um, I took a car once. Came home. One of the cars was gone, never to be seen again. (laughs) Uh, There was money there that I owed my dad that I hadn't cleaned up. And so when I was about five years sober, I got that better job with that travel agency and found out I was afraid to fly sober. That was like, <laughs> I I had to find God.
1: I had to find God. You know,
0: I, I couldn't. I couldn't continually live like that. And I knew God would give me a sign if I wasn't supposed to get on the plane, right? Well, I got a 12-step call right before I walked out the door once to go on a business trip. And I'm on the plane, I go, oh, crap, that was the sign, you know? (laughs) I should have taken the 12-step call and canceled the business trip. We're going down. All right. (laughs) And then one day, I just looked in first class. There was a seat, and for some reason, I knew God was there. So I always always take God on with me. been, you know, you fly enough, you're getting some weird things, but I always, always have a pilot sitting next to me telling me what's going on or, you know, a lot of things. Uh, I've been, I felt, I feel, I feel, um, I don't live in fear anymore. I don't live in fear anymore. I, I almost got, well, we did get mugged, um, sober. I was a few years sober and uh, I was picking up a girl, a sponsor, whose husband had flipped out and threw the phone through the window, and uh, he's flipping out. So I went to get her late at night, and we stopped and got gas, and we had her luggage. She was going to stay with me a few nights. And um, my husband, Al, was following us to make sure we were okay. But the guys that followed us and picked us up from the gas station and followed us to the dark street where I lived uh, didn't know he was following, too. So we're getting our stuff out of the car and all of a sudden, you know, I feel a knife in my back. I didn't even hear him coming up. And, and um, I ran. I ran. And then my husband came out of the car and he started jumping on these people. And he's little but he was a hockey player so he needed to pull a t-shirt up over their face. He was, he went wild. He went wild. <laughs> And I'm running, and this guy's behind me, and I'm thinking, I can't do this again. I can't I can't do this again. I'm just running, running, running. And I heard a voice that said, just give them your purse. So I turned around and handed him my purse, and that's all he wanted, and he was gone. So, you know, I just have had those moments where I feel protected and safe. And, I mean, you know, if it could have had a different ending, it had a different ending. But I had the awareness... um, Somehow that voice got through. Somehow that voice said, you don't have to live like this anymore. Somehow, somehow that voice gets through when I'm in a situation and it's, you know, where are my motives? I have to check my motives a lot. Um, so my dad, uh, I, I had got this sponsor, this better job at the agency, and I, um, and if you're following me, I love you because you're a little ADD, I, I just love that because <laughs> I segue a lot. And I have. Where's my lady that brings me back if I forget? She's not there. (laughs) Oh, you're back there. Okay, we're doing good so far. I had a little nap, so. So yeah, my dad read the big book, and uh, I called him after. Ginny said, "Call your dad, ask him if you can start making financial amends." And it's like, okay. And I called my dad, and he said, "Great, it's this much," and he had a total. He had run a calculator tape. My brother said, I saw your dossier on his desk in the office, and it was quite thick. (laughs) So he had kept every, probably every receipt, and he ran a calculator tape, circled in red, and my dad had a big chair, and he had books like this stacked. And somewhere in there was the AA book, the big book. And he had the calculator tape on page 78. It says, most alcoholics sell money. It was sitting in there. He was ready for me. I told my mother, look, if she calls and I'm not home, here it is. right?" So I had a new resentment, right? I call my sponsor. She's laughing at me. She thinks that's so funny. And I think it's really high. Where did they get that total? And she's laughing at me. She said, okay, you know, Don't be late with that check in the mail. Make sure you've got it in the mail every time on the month. Same, whatever date it is, every month. Because Bill and Bob are watching. Our founders, they're watching. Oh, man, don't lay that on me. And then she said, being a sponsor who's had experience, who knows more than me, who's been down the road already, taking the time to come back and sit with me with my little whining, and she said, are you willing to grow through this with your dad? What does she mean by that? That's an odd comment. Are you willing to grow through th- it?" I don't know what's at the other end of that, but it's my sponsor asking for something, and I want to get off the phone, so I say yes. <laughs> I say yes. And so she said, okay, don't send the cold, hard cash alone in the envelope. Tell your dad about your life. Send him a note about your life. Not all the other successful ones, your life. Oh, that was hard. It was a little tiny note and I told him about the jail panel I went on. Because I, I didn't know. I didn't know what to tell him. And you know, the, did she send the check and the note on time? Yes I did. She really checked up on me for a while. And I don't know when it was in the almost five years of sending the checks and the notes that I had a piece of paper. It was, you know, this big it was a this big piece of paper. And and I guess it was a piece of stationery, I didn't know it, but I I wrote all the way down and I got to the bottom and there were these little turtles crawling across the bottom. And I realized I had written that whole page without thinking about, oh, that's not going to sound right, or what does that mean, or he's going to take it wrong, or I shouldn't tell him that. I had just written my dad a free flow page. And it was a moment, it was a sacred moment that things were moving along. So the trip home got a little easier. It seemed to be. Um, now, I was, had this this baby boy, um, and right around um, right around ten years, my husband picked the newcomer in the room and had the affair. And I'm I'm a new mom. I'm not working. Um, I felt hugely betrayed. I'm a double Leo, so I'm like of am a lion, you know, and, and you betray that's something that just don't do I mean, I, that creepy guy in New Orleans with the skunk he moved to St. Louis and I was sitting in the bar one night and I thought he didn't even talk to me about leaving, so I got in the car to go find him in St. Louis because I'll hang on your leg all the way out the door if we're not done yet so that, that turned out to be interesting um, um he said, if he saw me again, he'd kill me and spit in my face, so I thought, okay, it's over. Um, <laughs> I can go back to New Orleans now, but, so betrayal is huge for me, huge for me, and I felt like all these people knew, and nobody told me, and his sponsor didn't even know, um, and Don, his sponsor, wrote in my book, <laughs> humility is what is left when the pain has been removed from humiliation. Really, I got, okay, I'm shooting for humility here with this whole thing. And my sponsor, Jenny, I picked her up at the airport. She had 21 days. So my life fell apart immediately. And I had you guys. I had my home group. Now, I wasn't happy, so I let you know it, because I cut my hair and made it Madonna white, and I spiked it up. I used that gel, I just, if you got near me, I might poke you. (laughs) So I was a little scary to look at, and I wore torn jeans, and since my husband was a punk rocker, I tried to get along, like, for a little bit to see, what is he doing? And I couldn't even go in the woman's bathroom. They had things and knives and things stuck in their hair. I was like, oh my God, been there, done that, I don't need to do this anymore. But we used to go to a group called The Cramps, and um, somebody back there knows The Cramps, and so I made this big shirt to go to the Cramps concert of a, of, it said Midol. So, so I would wear my Midol shirt to, to let everybody know how I felt. And I'm sitting at the Saturday night meeting with my legs out. The podium was closed. It was a tight little meeting. And you had to walk over my legs and my arms folded, not moving, I'm here, and they're in the back of the room, so I'm not even looking. I was told to sit in the front, so I couldn't see them. And people had to walk over my legs. And that lady, the CIA lady that I told you about, Pat, she was with a newcomer. I knew the newcomer. And she walked over my legs, and she looked back at the newcomer, and then the newcomer walked over my legs, and then she looked back at the newcomer, looked at me, and said to the newcomer, look at Sharon, she's got 10 years Do you want what she's got truth oh man it hurt and the night I was going to throw hot coffee on them in the back of the room because I had heard somewhere that if you throw hot coffee on them, people, can't, they're going to see the real spiritual nature so I was on my way with two big cups of coffee and Clancy happened to be at the meeting and that was when he was at his heyday of speaking and gone all the time but he happened to be there Saturday night And he took the coffee out of my hands, and he grabbed me by my shoulders, made me look at him, and he said, Sharon, you're going to walk through this with dignity and grace. And I would have stopped him there if he would have stopped, because I would have said, I don't care about dignity and grace. I want revenge. But he added the words that made the difference in my life at that moment, louder than my head, so you can be an example to others. And I had enough respect for Alcoholics Anonymous to hear that. So I left them alone, and I turned in the spare keys to the car that I had because I was going to drive it to the beach at low tide, his car. <laughs> <laughs> I had good ideas. I didn't do any, but thank goodness. But um, So and I did my inventory again, and I did my fifth step with Clancy again. I mean, I literally got thrown to my knees by this. And at one night when I couldn't sleep at two in the morning, I wrapped my grandma's quilt around me and sat on the heater on the floor and just wrote. And it was the beginning of breaking through to another layer of forgiveness. It was, it was a layer of forgiveness I didn't know was possible. But all I was doing was following direction. And um, I told you that my son would go over there. They got pregnant and married in that order. And you know, I'm 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 alone and I'm fine with it. And my uh my car died. It threw a rod. And my I had my son in the car, but we were off the freeway. And so I called my dad and mom every Sunday night, like I did. And my dad, I told, yeah, I said I, I the you know mechanic said I threw a rod, so the car's kind of gone. He's he told me about when he threw a rod in a big dump truck and. We laughed about it, and two days later, my dad called me. He said, your mother and I were at the bank today, and the banker has an extra car, and it's got 7,000 miles on it, and we're going to drive it out to you from Iowa. So my dad was able to be my dad with his daughter in trouble because the record, as Chuck C. talked about, had been rubbed out It wasn't on hold. It had been rubbed out. And my mom got to be my mom helping her daughter go through a divorce. She said, we're getting you a new bed, you know. We're painting this house. So I got this uh, Ford Galaxy with deer whistles on it. You guys know what deer whistles are. Nobody (laughs) in California knew what deer whistles (laughs) were. And they would, like, have these things. I'm like, oh, my God, what are those things? Is that to tow your car? I said, they're my beam-me-up whistles when the mothership comes. <laughs> <laughs> so I had that Ford Galaxy because my son was safe in that car. And it was, I look back on that, and I think, my amends were for them. I got it. It wasn't for me. It was for them. Because, you know, I have a child, and I think if I couldn't help him, I don't know how it would feel. And they got to help their daughter in trouble and it was pretty pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. To see that it the forgiveness was there, the redemption was there and one of my trips home, um you know, my son he learned how to weed strawberries, uh, you know, drive a rider mower, um he learned how to use a hammer and nail you know, hammer and nails and equipment and he learned how to swim. They taught him how to swim. He learned how to ride a horse. They gave him tennis lessons. He went back to Grandma and Grandpa. That was my gift to them. They loved having him there. And um, I think then, when he was like 14 or 15, my mom said, oh, "I don't think he needs to come anymore." <laughs> you know. But that was my gift to them, and that that they enjoyed that. And my dad and I were driving. I would have come pick him up, and then he'd fly home with me. And we were driving a town, you know, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It's like a hundred and some thousand. Thank you. Um, I get to see who the gentlemen are in the group. Oh. Veil of tears here, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. That was a judgment. No, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> see, I have my own hanky. I just forget to use it. I just I don't know why. But we went to town, and we had to get some parts for, my dad had a big construction business and lots of equipment. And so we had to get a part, and we were driving back, and there's a root beer stand on the way back. And he said, you want a root beer? And I said, yeah, it would be nice. So we stopped at the A&W, and I get my root beer, and I'm walking back to the car, and he said, let's go sit on that picnic table under the tree there. It's like, oh, that's right. They do things differently. They relax, you know. They enjoy their root beer. So I went over there and sat, and we sat under the tree on a, just a summer night in Iowa, evening, and we just talked. We had our root beer, and I don't know where it came from, but there was innocence there. It was like I was swinging my legs under that table like a little girl. Are you willing to grow through this with your dad, my sponsor said. You know, And the way it all ended with the money was he called me, He called me the day after Christmas, five years in, almost, not quite, and he said, Merry Christmas, Sharon, I don't want your money anymore. And then he said what made the big difference, don't stop sending me your notes. And um, so this was a huge amend because I think, you know, by then I'm starting to work around a lot of men, and, you know, I felt worth it. I felt like I was in my Whole five, six body here that I wasn't, you know, like worried or whatever they're thinking. I was like in my, I was able to work with men that had some sort of power over my job and not be afraid. It changed somehow. I became a human with other humans. And my dad was killed in 99. And it was on his land, and it was an accident with some equipment, and it was instant, and it was over in a second. He didn't even know he was in trouble. But he walked out of my mom's life after almost 58 years and gave her a kiss after lunch, and he didn't come back. And it was really very traumatic for her. And this is kind of interesting, and I usually don't talk about this much, but I woke up that morning with impending doom. April 19th, 1999. And I didn't know what it was. And I was sitting outside at lunch and a girl that works in the building that I know from me came by and said, hey, what's going on with you? You look really funny today. I said, I know. I don't know what it is. I just have this feeling and it's not about me. And it was my dad's day to go. And after his funeral, um, he... Uh, It rained, it rained, it rained, it rained. And it was, it was quite tragic, so a lot of people came out. And then we went to the house after the funeral, the sun came out, and people were around. And for some reason I saw this contrail jet stream in the sky, and I said to somebody that, you know, AA was already in my mother's house when I landed. Thank you. I said to a girl I spotted I said, Kathy, where's my camera? I gotta take a picture of that. And she thought, well what? Well, she could hardly see it. But I had to take a picture of that, and then I got distracted, and then, oh, it's over here. I better take it before it goes behind the house. So I took a picture. I don't know why. And after we had the pictures developed, they were sitting on the table, and some of us stayed around for about a week with my mom, and somebody was looking at this first picture, the first one on the roll, and there's a shadow of a man. (coughs) Now, you might think this is weird. I thought it was weird, but there was a shadow of a man by where the contrail was above, and it wasn't on the ground, he was above the ground, and he stood like my dad stood. Mm -hmm. Just the shadow of a man. And somebody's looking at it and go, wow, look at that, look at that, look at that. And I said, oh yeah, I, I took that picture because there was that jet stream. I had to take a picture of that jet stream. I didn't know why. And my mom started to cry. I said, mom, what's wrong? And she said, This makes me feel so happy. Did you know that your dad liked to walk out on the porch and look at the jet streams in the sky? I said no. He didn't. I never knew that of him. So my mother felt comforted by that. And I don't know if I was called. I don't know what it all means. But it gave my mother comfort. And it's, you know, of course, we had to have the picture analyzed. It's really there. All of that, you know. And then the priest had to see it for her and, you know, the whole bit. So... It was really, um, it, I felt like my dad called me to give my mom some comfort. So, yeah, and then my dad gets killed and Clancy's out of town. He's in Africa. Before cell phones, really, you can't really get anybody. He's down there somewhere speaking or somewhere, somewhere far away. So um, I, we got on the plane and did the funeral, but I knew I couldn't talk at my dad's wake. I just knew I couldn't. And so I thought, hmm, there's that Heliganka accordion. It's his Czechoslovakian accordion, button accordion sitting in the corner over there. And I'm thinking, yeah, I played the accordion, but it was Italian, you know, piano keys and buttons, not two sets of buttons. And I played the accordion, and when I was drinking and hanging with the boys from Iowa City, and I would go on these hay rides because they'd have sauerkraut days or something, and I'm in the Boddicker Accordion Band or Beef Days or whatever it is, and I'd be sitting on a hay wagon with hay poking through my little dress with the rest of them pulling on the Lady of Spain or whatever we play, beer bell polka, whatever. And the boys from the night before go, isn't that that fun girl? What is she? Is that her there on the hay wagon? And then I would go around the corner, and there would be my dad standing there with his buddies, and he'd go... My girl, you know, so I I risked playing the accordion because that's what I had with my dad was that accordion thing, and it's in the corner talking to me and it says, "Just pick me up and play Amazing Grace." So I don't know buttons. There's a lot of notes when there's buttons on both sides. So I'm down in the cedar closet in the basement, and I poor Kathy, the girl from Iowa, sponsor, come on Kathy, come sit with me. And so she, we're in the cedar closet, and I'm playing, trying to. After about an hour, I said, "How's it sound, Kathy?" She says, oh, "That sounds better." <laughs> 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 so it's raining. We're having the wake. I can't. Nobody knows me. They think I'm my sister. That, oh, you must be Nancy. And I was like, "Oh, I just couldn't handle it anymore." So I went to the rectory, and I I knew Clancy was back. So I called Midnight Mission. He didn't answer. I call back. I said. Tell him, it's, tell him it's me, right? Tell him it's Sharon, and i got to talk to him now. And so he gets on the phone, and he said, I'm so sorry. I heard what happened to your dad. I'm sorry I wasn't here. And so I'm sobbing. And, you know, and if you sponsor anybody, and you get them going, <laughs> it's like, where are they? What are they doing? Are they a car wreck? You know, they can't die. Did they break a nail? You just don't know. you got to, like. <laughs> so he's, he's kind of understanding that I'm trying to play his accordion or something, and he just, thank God for sponsors. They can get through. He said, Sharon, just relax, relax. You're going to do a beautiful job. I know you. You'll be able to do it. So go out there and play that for your dad. But do me one favor. Look around the church. There's not going to be a dry eye. But there will be a couple of people sobbing. I want you to look at those people because they're the musicians. LAUGHTER So yeah, that's you know brought me right back to reality. This is your father's funeral, and it has nothing to do with you. And go do a good job, and and it worked out fine. But I love that we have that. I love that we have this laughter. I love that we can make each other through the darkest times of our of our of our life. We can pull each other out with just some. That crazy laughter. I don't know if you guys ever go to Tarantino movies, but we're the ones really laughing in those movies. (laughs) And the rest of the people in the, in the, you know, movie theater are looking at us like, who are those sick people over (laughs) there? So my father was the biggest amends. I got to write him one more letter and put my chip in before they closed. Well, the coffin was closed, but the little door that we put notes in, they closed the door and sealed it. And, um, Innocence, forgiveness. Who knew that could come back? Who knew a sponsor knew that it is possible? And um, my um, my carnival. I told you about my carnival. That I, how am I going to make amends for ripping off kids and not giving them teddy bears and being mean and 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 trashing motel rooms as we went through town and taking what we wanted and leaving the rest behind? You know, I didn't know that someday I'm going to have to make amends for that. And then when my son. Had the rap sheet from the Lutherans and we sent him to the Catholics. Um, they understood him. Um, Sister Sheila, who I sponsored, she said, He'll be fine. He's just creative. <laughs> and, and he liked uniforms. Should have been a clue. Probably not going to be an alcoholic. He liked structure. And um, so, yeah, he was in that school and they have that carnival. And so for eight years, I, I worked at that carnival. For eight years, I collected money from all those attorneys I worked with for their, you know, because they, They pay for their their soccer equipment. They pay for their drama equipment. They play for them. All the extra stuff comes from that fundraising. And so my son was the highest fundraiser ever in that school, still is to this day. And so when he got his award in eighth grade, he called me up. He said, no, this is for my mom. It's very sweet. So I knew that it was over, and it was a wonderful way. And if I owe you, if you guys were anywhere near Arkansas, Oklahoma, <laughs> Louisiana, Texas, and some lady wouldn't give you, I don't care if you're my age. I will buy you a teddy bear. We will <laughs> go get you a teddy bear. So I'm still waiting for somebody who's going to say that. But. So that was huge. And um, I just had so many beautiful things with the men's. Um, <sighs> My work, I think I told you that I said I was going to save that for you um, so for thirty years, I worked with a lot of attorneys, a lot of partners, a lot of you know I was in administration, I was in finance, I did you know collections, I did a lot of different things for them and and um, i I just you know it was my job i didn 't mix a in my job at all, which was really good because I could walk in there every day and go okay they 're going to teach me how not to be <laughs> it's a little arrogant. But then one day I walked in, and I already know how not to be, you know? Um, you know, and it's it's like what the Buddhists do. They t- they learn from people. They learn through the, you know, the suffering. And I was suffering a lot there, but I had my AA, and I ran to my meetings, and I could take calls, and it was really good. And they, when my husband died, um, I called them, and um, they said, well, take all the time you want, right? But then when I came back to work and then the funeral was, or the memorial was a couple weeks later, I came back to work and I said I wanted to take some time and and they said, well, you have to take vacation time. I said, well, what about family medical? You've already taken those days. Okay, so I took vacation time and then I came back and I was, you know, everything was over and I'm back at work and my boss called me and I thought, okay, the tissues are gonna come out, all of that, and he he didn't, he just said, close the door. And he said, you know, Sharon, I'm really, I'm really sorry this happened to you. But if you can't do your job, will you let me know? <sighs> Did I just hear that right? <laughs> I think I got up and just kind of walked out of the room. And I didn't even know how to turn on my computer. I was in such shock. And I dug a hole out of my hand, too, just by sitting there so I wouldn't, like, quickly with my nail. So I wouldn't say anything or do anything. Um. And uh I never felt quite supported after that. There were you know, and I had this huge resentment and HR didn't want to talk about it, they're just whatever, HR you know, they didn't it wasn't a supportive environment. But we had a new HR lady that come in and I sat down with her and she said, Tell me something that didn't feel right here with the other people and I said, Well, you wanna hear a story and I told her the story and she felt so bad. But the good news is that happened about two weeks before one of the old-time secretary's husband just died of a heart attack, and they knew how to support her. wasn't about me. (laughs) wasn't about me at all. But, um, man, I carried that one for a long time. I carried that one for a long time. That took a lot of acting right. That took a lot of not cutting corners, and that took a lot of... You know, thank God I had some ethics going at that time because, you know, I could have, I I could have done some damage. I could have done. I had my hands on money. I could have done some damage. And then once I did lose a hundred thousand dollar check, and I thought, did I do that on purpose? I found it. I I dug through everything, but I just, I was kind of panicked, thinking, was I trying to sabotage myself? Because, you know, it was, it was in me to think about it. So, you know, it was in me to think about. And um, so, yeah, when, when they eliminated my position after 16 years, it was really because they were moving everybody to Dallas. They had two millennials do my job. So um, that's the way it kind of was, and they all wanted to move to Dallas, and they knew I wasn't going to, so they had to have a separation agreement. And, and I got to move on in my life. But, you know, if I would have acted badly, I don't know. But I'm really glad that I did that, you know, for the secretary that needed them to have different, Means of support for somebody who's going through something like that. And, um, okay, um, share your pain. That's something that I really know is that, you know, we come here and we share our pain. We talk about what's going on. Um, I, you know, cats go in a closet, lick their wounds and come out, you know, and, and we don't do that here. We, we sit in the room with each other. We support each other. Like I said, people are at my mother's house before I even got off the plane. That's what happens when, you know, the AA um, word goes out. People are there. And the good news is, too, is that I've never heard anybody say, we don't stay sober through that here. You're going to have to leave. I've never heard that. There's always somebody. We can find somebody. So it's, it's beautiful that we share our pain here and we heal here and You know, forgiveness. When I see somebody go through, uh, it's you get one mom, one dad, and when I get to see some of these women work things out when they they come from a very bad background, and I I got to see this fifth step being read in my house, and I got to see a transformation happen in front of my eyes. Yeah, makes you a believer working with others. Really makes you a believer working with others. So loving deeply is how I've become. What you've you've moved so much. What blocks me from you and blocks me from God is is a lot of fear. It's mostly fear. I I am clean with with people I owe money to. I am clean with um, you know my bills. I am clean with all of the adult things. Paying your taxes. My tax account called me at midnight last night, and it was, uh, it was only 9 in L.A., and it's like, oh, uh, I don't want to go to sleep thinking about all that, <laughs> so it's like, you know, my first thought was, why me, God, and the next thought is why not me, okay, you know, the good news is I have a tax accountant, you know, and I have some something new to talk to him about, so I'm starting this little business, and... I asked for what I need and uh, he said okay. And so I'm working for this sweet older attorney now, part time. It's a perfect schedule for me to be semi retired. And he's in a historical house in LA and it's fun to drive to work. I don't have to get on a freeway. And, um, you know, I've got a lamp with fringe around it. You know, it's this old, huge, they use it for movies, historical house. And it's quiet and everybody's nice to each other. And I am so. I just smile going to work, and even if he wouldn't have given me what I asked for, I would have known I asked for it. You know, I was surprised. He said, okay, wow, okay, that's easy. You know, that was easy. I even if he would have said no, I would have been happy because I asked for it. So there's been a lot of growth this last year for me and my, and um, losing my mom was huge. Losing my mom was huge. Wow. Um, yeah, I got, you know, my mom was 95. And this is some of the men's, the men's keep coming up. She was 94 years old, talking to somebody in the other room at her 94th birthday. She didn't move to Madison, Wisconsin, so I am from Wisconsin now. So cheese, cheese and custard, yes. Um, and she um, said to somebody, there was only one time in my life when my husband said I couldn't help one of the children. I wonder if that was me, right? I hear this. So of course it's, I'm sure it's me, really. So I talked to her about the next day. I said, mom, and it was the day that I called. She knows I'm in the hospital. She knows I had been in a bad situation. She knows that, you know, what had happened to me, but she didn't know what hospital I was in. The person neglected to tell her what hospital I was in in California. So, when that happened, July twenty seventh, 1975, my mother didn't sleep until my older sister in New York and my mother in Iowa called every hospital until they found me and found out what happened to me, that I was going to be okay. So on August 20th, when that guy that said I had to leave because I was depressing him, I had nowhere to go with my broken jaw and all of that, and I had to go back to Palm Springs to court. Um, When I called my mom, collect, she said, Sharon, I can't help you anymore, go to the Salvation Army. And if mom would have sent $20, dollars you would have another speaker, seconds and inches. And that's why I called Chris, the drunk in the bar, that I called Suzanne, and they sent over the two beautiful girls to take me to my first meeting, I've been here ever since. But I always thought my mother was the one that said that. And she said to me, she said, I said, Mom, was it that day? And she said, yeah, it was. She said, I had to put the phone on my chest and look at your father and ask him if we could help you. And he said, no, we've tried. And my mom got on the phone and took the heat. Because she knew, I told you, defiance was one of my problems. If she would have said, your father said, you'd have another speaker, because I would have taken every ounce of me and gone out and done something and probably not been here. So at 94 years old, I got to relieve my mother of that by keeping my ears open. So you just never know. They're there all the time. (laughs) I am not done yet. I have a purpose here and uh, a responsibility to Alcoholics Anonymous to be an example. Jill and Alan, I'll end here. Jill is the girl that he, pregnant and married in that order, had a baby named Daryl, my son's half brother my son's name is Wesley after my grandpa who I didn't get to say goodbye to because I was drunk in the bar three blocks from the hospital my favorite grandpa so my son goes there for um, every other weekend and I told you she was nice to him and did nice things and Clancy had said bite your tongue and I did I bit my tongue and I was so intense I remember he looked up at me one night and he said mom you're a mean mom a mean mom So I started, like, really worrying about that. And I I talked to Clancy, and he said, well, what does your son like to do? I said, I don't know, Legos? So we had Lego time. And my son said to me just this summer after all that happened with the potential wife, um, you're the most stable person, Mom, in my life ever. You know, he's written me funny Mother's Day notes over the years, back to when, when she gets mad at me, but I know she loves me, too, you know, making a... Face on the, the card to now when it's, you know, you're, you're my forest mom. And um, but he said, you know, I was a mean mom and we worked that out. Because I was just too intense. But, you know, I had that hard year. And Clancy said, just leave them alone. And then how they come is how they go sometimes. He um, left her for number three. And he's still sober somewhere in Nevada, doesn't have much of a relationship but with his kids. But, um, yeah, Jill told me at some point after we got to be close again, we started slowly with the kids and the two ex-wives. We started slowly, like we would go on a little day ski trip. Or we would go out to dinner and the movies when the kids liked all those, you know, Lion King and all that stuff. And we started slowly maybe coming over at Christmas to one of the other houses just to exchange presents. And at one point then, I don't know how far into our learning to have a relationship with each other, she said, you know, I knew I could do it because I watched you walk through it. Mm-hmm. You'll get to judge who gets your example. <laughs> it's for fun and for free. And um, she gives me a cake every year, and she likes to... Tell everybody that you know we were both married to the same man, and then she pauses at different times <laughs> <laughs> and she is one of my dearest friends dearest friends, and who knew that my example was going to help her and then near one year, one month and fourteen la- days later that 's when I got to walk into a life with my man Casey and but who was counting, uh, But the door open and I ran like hell to put my shoe through it and crack that door open a new view, yes, you know, sometimes those hallways get you, that's all, it's just a hallway, it's called growth, it's called, you know, humility after the pain has been removed from humiliation and if you're in the hallway, talk to somebody else, they're in a hallway too, you know, <laughs> hang some art, throw open the windows, go hang out with them, go to a movie, eat some good food, get to a meeting together, get through the hallway, you know, we all get through the hallway if we stay here, And I'm in a new view now, and I'm just so excited to share it with you guys. Forgiveness is a very, very powerful tool. Very, very powerful tool. It's, um, I love this. Bill, A Full and Thankful Heart. I try to hold fast to the truth that a full and thankful heart cannot sustain great conceits. When brimming with gratitude, one's heartbeat must surely renew in outgoing love the finest emotion that ever came so love is the answer thanks for having me